I'm Isabel. And I'm Ben. Welcome to Conversations in Company, a podcast from the charity Suicide & Co, here to make the suicide loss a little less lonely. We've both been on this journey for a few years. I lost my cousin to suicide in 2017. And I lost my brother to suicide in 2018. We really, really hope that we and our guests can offer you some companionship wherever you are on this journey. Dan, how are you doing, Dan? <laughs> Very well, thank you. You had a nice Very day? Well. I've had a lovely day, all the better for, for being here, I must say. Aww. I must say. Aww. I must say. Don't you say much. Charmer. That's all right. Charmer. Yeah, Straight th- off the bat. There we go. Look at this. <laughs> thank you so much for being here, Dan. I really appreciate it. Um, obviously, this podcast is about suicide. It's not an easy thing to talk about. Um, so we really appreciate you coming on, joining us, talking openly about this, and hopefully helping those people out there that are listening. Yeah, I appreciate that as well, and I think it's a, a pleasure, and, and obviously the work with Suicide & Co over the past year of, of knowing them and being involved in the charity, this is the first time where I've met the guys and the team face-to-face, and I was just saying, what a, a wonderful way to start with a conversation like this, again, christening the face-to-face meet, so I'm looking forward to, to the conversation, and as much as obviously it is a serious topic, um, I think we can still obviously talk about moments of humour within my own journey, that's going to come out a lot as well, and and it'll be interesting, but hopefully, again, that value there for, for those who are listening. I'm looking forward to it. I'm so excited. What's your experience of suicide and suicide loss? Yes, so we'll delve straight into it, yeah. straight into it. Okay, wonderful. Um, and it's a good place to start. It'll give some context as to, to why I do the work that I do and, and, and that whole process. But my journey started at nine years old with the loss of my father. So very, very young, obviously. And I think one of the, the only things you should be worrying at an age of nine years old is like what colour notepad, not what colour crayon you're using to colour in those notepads with the, the numbers on, or again, what, what sport you're going to play at lunch and all of those things. And I remember being nine years old and then having this huge event, which just knocked me for six and, and, and threw my world upside down. And the ability to be able to comprehend something like that at, at that age. Just even con- comprehending death at that age yeah. is like... Yeah. It's an interesting one. So I'd lost three grandparents before that time so I'd already by the time I was five years old I'd, I'd kind of asked myself those questions of life of of death I'd had to understand okay why are grandparents not here what is a funeral all those things so I'd been in, in those scenarios and I think that was a catalyst for my emotional intelligence my sensitivity definitely as I was growing up because I did have to think and and process some of those things yeah. but when it is something as, as large as a suicide and the complexities that come around with that yeah. As a nine-year-old, again, when we shouldn't be worrying about any of those things, and, and your, your your dad as well. Like it's a, it's not just suicide and a death; it's your it's your parent. Like the triple threat of that is it's huge. Yeah. And the again with parents growing up at that age, those developmental years as well, especially, you just think they're going to be there forever, and that they're going to be able to give you the support that they need always, and they'll always be there in your life. And to lose someone in, in such a way out of nowhere because we know parents are so great at hiding things as well. Yeah. So I had no idea any of this was going on. So it was going from having dad around, play fighting, playing PlayStation or whatever, watching films to then, okay, he's, he's no longer here. And to comprehend that was, was extremely tough. And it was really interesting. I was speaking about this to, to a, a gentleman I was speaking to today. We talk about, could I comprehend what depression and, and, and what suicide even was? And you'd think at nine years old, maybe not, but I, I, around about 10 years after it had happened, so when I was kind of like 19, ended up finding this book, um, and it was a, a, po- a poetry book. And basically in primary school, we were tasked with uh, writing a poem uh, about emotions, and you could get this poem published in a book. So at nine years old, uh, everyone's writing about like playing football and on the garden and all of these things. And in this book, it says, uh, Daniel Wilshire, I think it's like year six, also is primary school, and, and it's titled Depression. And it says, um, depression is a cage that you can't break out of. It's like pitch black night has taken over your soul. You see nothing but hate and frustration. And it goes on and on and on. It was really interesting for me to, to know that even at nine years old, nine-year-old Daniel was trying to put himself in his dad's shoes to understand yeah. what had gone on. And the, the depiction of what depression was, was so accurate in a world where a lot of adults wouldn't be able to, mm. to, to speak about it, let alone put that into a, 
piece of poetry. So it's really interesting, but it shows the impacts of, of a suicide on someone that age because it was yeah, all that I was thinking. Yeah, yeah, all that I was when, thinking about. When um, I lost Sam, because I was I was seventeen, mm. so not quite nine, but I remember I. <laughs> Someone was asking how I was doing, and I remember saying, I feel like I've aged 30 years and three months because mm. you have to grow up so fast. Yeah. Suddenly, uh, for me, it was like suicide, depression, mental illness. It became something I was just, I've got to talk about and say and be, and be able to understand and be able to deal with all this very adult stuff quite quickly. Obviously, at nine years old, like you said, do you, when you should be choosing a colour of pencil to draw right? yeah. and suddenly dealing with these very, very adult themes, do you feel... Mm -hmm like I did, I do feel that I lost a little bit of my childhood. Do you feel like it affected your, what you should have had as a childhood? 100%. We know that from anyway, from the loss of a parent. There are, are things, a, a child needs a stable household initially in order to, to develop properly. Um, and then obviously we have the, the, the impacts that come from, from a suicide. And the idea that if you lose a parent, you're 60% more likely to take your own life. And I always viewed it as the burden that my dad was feeling was then passed onto my shoulders and that's really how it felt so it wasn't kind of an easy process coming through that at all and I think the other side of it was there was as with any suicide as you guys know the the pursuit for the answer to those questions that you know you'll never get is so important it was like I have all these questions why did I tell him I loved him enough maybe it was financial stress he was going through I know he used to drink and, and had a problem with that sometimes like there were all these questions that were spiraling round and round that I knew I'd ne never get the answers to, but the pursuit of those answers feel, felt so necessary. So for years, it was kind of putting myself in his shoes to understand why. Now, when we talk about the impacts that that thought has as, as a child, as they're growing up, I used to really struggle with the image of, of my dad as well because I could never see it in a positive light. Mm. So there was all that pressure. And again, you do have to grow up because you understand the true spectrum of life then, isn't it? It's, yeah. it's an experience that, again, you really understand what life can be about and, and life and death. And then you also think about yourself in the whole process of, of that. Um, I'm his son. I might be capable of doing the same because maybe this is genetic and maybe I need to uh, make sure that I'm have as much money as possible so that I can look after my family and I can look after myself because I know my dad was struggling financially. There's all these huge questions that come. So the pressure on, on what life meant for me was always different growing up. So, and that wasn't a childlike understanding or perspective of life. It was very much so, uh, again, these big existential questions. So we're today going to be talking about uh, professional help and therapy and counselling. Um, I've had it, um, Ben. Yeah, Ben has, and I assume you have done as well. Yes, indeed. What a journey! Yeah, I know. Yeah, it was. <laughs> did you did you feel going into it like confident about going into it? Were you going into professional help like, yeah, this is going to be a or were you going in as I was? I don't know about you, Isabel, but going in actually quite nervous about what it meant uh, for me going into it not really knowing what it was? So my mum is a therapist, okay. and so I knew what it was, and I I thought it was bullshit. <laughs> I was like, yeah. it's absolute my rubbish. career it's is fake. Stupid, <laughs> it's a stupid way that middle-class people can like get over their problems by going and spending hundreds of pounds Talk on talking to someone else. <laughs> yeah. like, ah. And then I, um, when I had it, I, like, I became very aware very quickly. I was like, I mm. need some help. I remember being like... I'm now at a point where I can't cope with this on my own. I'm not... And all of my things that I would do to, like, maintain, like, a, a steady life. So I lost my cousin at 31. Mm -hmm. So I, like, sort of had, you know, a, a full grown-up in many ways, also not in others, but, like, had coping mechanisms for, like, when things weren't going well and they weren't working. So I was mm -hmm. like, oh, do you know what? I think I'm actually going to need this. And I I knew what I was going into. And I it was more at that stage that I was like... I just need to know that this person's mm. going to be, firstly, strong enough to deal with me. Like, I'm, I can weasel out of a question. I can weasel out of, like, a difficult situation by making a joke. I know I can make people laugh very quickly. And so I was like, I need this person to be really fucking firm with me. And mm. if they're not firm enough, I'm out the door. Like, mm -hmm. I'm not even... So I got free 
I had free bereavement counselling with a service in North London. Um, as soon as I met my therapist, I was like, oh, yeah, I'm not getting around this part. This no, way, no way around, yeah. And it's so interesting because I feel like you know. When you know, yeah. you know. And I was, I was really lucky with mine. I, I had um, psychodynamic psychotherapy, which looks at basically unearthing emotions that as they say are trapped in the subconscious that stem from childhood events. Yeah. So I think it's really important to understand what type of therapy you're going for yeah. as well. That was perfect for me because this happened in my childhood. Yeah. And I had other things as well. And it also, psychodynamic psychotherapy looks at the way you navigate relationships and the beliefs that are formed that impacts those relationships. Yeah. So because of the guilt around my dad's suicide, I really struggled with showing anger as a healthy response. Right. Um, because my belief that I'd formed um, because of a certain scenario around the suicide, which we can talk about a little bit, but my belief was that if I put my anger on someone, my emotions are too heavy, so they'll kill themselves. Mm -hmm. So I need to keep those within myself. And that really impacted my ability to set boundaries in relationships. Yeah. Still something I have to manage. So it looked at the whole way I navigate those things. And that was the perfect type of therapy that I needed. Yeah. Um, so I think foundationally, like looking at the different types is really important anyway. How old were you when you, had, when you had that? I was 22. And to come back to your question before, because you asked... How did I find about, just, it leads on from it anyway, don't worry. Just, you asked around how I found the process and I hated it. I hated it. I was so scared. I used to leave on my Friday lunch from my job in recruitment. Terrible, no advice for anyone. Um, <laughs> no, I'm joking, I'm joking. All you recruiters out there, it's okay, it's okay. Um, I'm trying to make up as a such mental a, health public speaker today. Such, for a, my <laughs> such a tangent, like, oh yeah, I was so, so scared about uh, my counselling. Don't, don't go into, don't go into <laughs> employment or whatever, yeah. But uh, I used to run from my Friday lunch yeah. from the office, so no one knew that I was going. And I would run to the therapy appointment. I had seven minutes to get there from my, th my office seat to the therapy seat. I, I remember and all that whole seven minutes was me just feeling so angry. And my face used to be like a slapped ass. I, hate, I had to like literally force myself to go. But that was at the point for me where I'd tried everything else. I'd tried the self-help books. I tried the meditation every day until that became toxic. I tried because um, I couldn't do a meditation. I was like, Dan, you failed again. Um, yeah. I tried the journaling. I tried signing up for half marathons and this, all these external things that I believed if I could just do them, that would give me the confidence to know that I'm still capable as an individual. And none of those works. And what I needed was not self-help. It was the help of somebody else. And that was the point for me was I, need, I know I need to go. It's, it's, so did you have nothing when you were nine? Like six, as a child? Six hours. Six hours. For something that's, that would take me 13 that's years. That's not enough time. And it was like think back to a time when you were happy with your dad and put the colours of sand into this. That's the only thing I remember. And even that um, probably did help in some sense because it really helped me probably just think of one memory that was really positive amongst all of the darkness that was obviously around it. Because again, when that event happened, I couldn't view the relationship with my dad in any way positive. It was all just negative. So to have a, a little bit of this glimmer of something that was founded in love and, and, and positivity was nice. But again, six hours at nine years old for something that would then take me 13 years to, to, to deal with, and it's not enough. So the episode we've, we've done previous to this was about timelines. And I think it's so interesting, isn't it, that some people, right, I've got that counselling in three years and it went really well. And starting to hear like 13 years goes past before you actually get access to someone that that goes through it and starts to process it. Yeah. So many people's timelines can be so different. Yeah. It's really interesting, but obviously the average between developing symptoms and receiving professional help, we know is eight to 10 years. So that's what's called the treatment gap. You'll, you'll know already, but that was, that rang true in my, my journey, my actual symptoms. So at the points where I can pinpoint, well, there was emotional stress at this point in school and there was changes in my behaviors. And if you looked at the music that was right, and it was probably around 14 years old, when you could real, really start to see symptoms of kind of depression, emotional, um, complex emotional beliefs, all those things started to manifest at 14, but yeah. I didn't get therapy until 22. Yeah. Um, and, and that's what's very scary, isn't it? Because a, a very simple analogy, again, you will have heard it before, but if anybody breaks their arm with that physical trauma, yeah. they're at the doctor's straight away. Yeah. Straight away. Nobody's waiting longer than an hour or two hours from breaking their arm, they're going right away. Why are people waiting eight to ten years to, to receive, re receive support? 
you know, just the logic of going, okay, we've got a 14 year old mm. potentially who, or 15, 13, whatever, mm-hmm. who's, who's, clearly going through quite a rough time we all go through a rough time at 14 but if you look at one child at 14 who's going through quite a difficult time and then if you think do you know what they've gone through a massive trauma maybe we just need to cushion this person a little we all need help but like cushion this person a little bit more through the next like school all of anyone who might need it might have needed to go do you know what actually i think this person needs a bit more support 100 percent just on, on that point, finally, um, just before I come on to your question. So there was a song that I wrote at 13 years old and it was so interesting. It was called Realize. And the belief system that I learned through psychodynamics ther- therapy at 22, the exact belief system that I'd learned was written in the first verse of the song I wrote at 13. All the stuff was there. All the markers are there. If someone would have asked me, you'd have, you'd have been able to delve into it. I'd have been able to say, again, damn, why did that song was amazing. Um, yeah. It was, you sang so well, but I, I noticed these themes about you feeling alone or feeling like you want to take your own life or whatever, because they were all in the piece of music. Where did that inspiration come from? That's a conversation that can then open up a bit of a window into my world, but nobody had it. And because it was wrapped up in this beautiful piece of music that was sang so well, everyone's like, oh, Dan's fine. Dan's yeah. doing well at his grades. He's doing this, this and this. So we don't need to ask if Danny's not doing well. And, and it, was, it was sad because those behaviours, when I didn't have the words to speak, were my way of asking for help when they went unnoticed, then it reinforced the idea that I only had myself to, yeah. to rely on, which is why I think, again, the idea of then accessing therapy later on was so tough mm-hmm. from, from the point where I was really in, in difficult depression. It took me four years to get to, to therapy. So what, at what point, so 22, mm-hmm. what was your process to getting it? My mum. Was it? Yeah, it was. I wasn't at the point of me getting therapy. I still wasn't ready for it. Yeah. I would never. I wouldn't have done it myself. Yeah. And one of the key lessons there is listen to your mum. <laughs> listen, <laughs> mums are amazing. <laughs> listen, and, but it's also the idea of that. Like people will be able to give you the help that you need if you allow them to be there for you as well. Uh, and that was a, a really important lesson for me because again, I just believed as a male in society that you know, that it was me who needed to fix it. And my, um, how I would gauge my own strength as a, as a man, as an individual would be my ability to be able to cope with adversity on my own. And that was my way of, 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 of gauging how strong I was as a man. When in hindsight, I realized how stupid a, a belief and an ideology that obviously is. Same, yeah. so often I was just pretending to everyone around me. Like, like I came from a, my mindset when I was at school and when I lost Sam was like my, my friend group was really huggy. Like they'd hug and then, hi, yeah, you know. And I honestly, I wouldn't reciprocate the hug because I thought that wasn't manly. Mm. Like I just stand there, like I'm not going to hug you. That's so unmanly. Mm. And that was my mindset. You couldn't even embrace someone yeah. because you were so scared of coming across as feminine. So mm. then I was in this situation where I was like, well, I can't, I've got to handle this. Right, you, can't, you can't look like you need someone else's help. And that took so long to then, you know, we, we talk about accessing counselling. Just the process of thinking I need to rely on someone else, I need to help from someone else was an enormous hurdle to, to take. Um, and doesn't help that the first person I met was not helpful at all. And that actually leads me on to the, on a question I had for you. It's yeah. like we, we, we talk about, oh, I met this person, it was just perfect fit. We've got to meet the right person or get the right access yeah. to the right type of therapy. That can be quite confusing if someone doesn't know what we're talking about. Yeah. How did you know that the, the therapist, the counsellor was the right person for you? And how did you know the type of therapy was the right therapy for you? So the process, uh, it came from, again, I'd exhausted all my own mechanisms for trying to support myself. And 13 years of that obviously hadn't worked. So I was like, right, I actually, I'm at real crisis point. I've been struggling with the suicidal ideation myself for four years. And I ended up basically calling my mum and just saying I'm struggling on the phone and she was like let's go for a a chat we went for a a conversation the next day and I said a sentence I said look I've been struggling with depression anxiety for four years and I've had a problem with drugs and alcohol tough telling my mum and she was brilliant the way she handled it in the moment she gave me everything I needed and then she called me the next day and she's like Dan I've organized for you to go and see a therapist the appointment is literally in two weeks like all you have to do is turn up and that was what was pivotal for me because I'd been that geezer who said, listen, I'm never taking a pill for the way that I think. And I'm never sitting across from someone, especially a male and talking about my emotions. That whole thing just didn't regulate. It didn't make sense in my mind. But I also knew that 
that's, that was what I needed, but my pride was still in the way. So the fact she'd taken that action was splendid. So yeah. to come on to it, so I ended up going to, um, through the Spire Hospital, which is a private hospital, and I had a consultation with a psychiatrist. <laughs> um, um, he's asking me these questions, like, how's your sleep? How's your motivation? Um, what do you want from life? And he's circling these numbers, and he writes, like, the number 44, I think, at the end. It's a PH9 test, I think it's called. And he circles 44, whatever the number was, and he was like, Dan, I think you've got depression and anxiety. I was like, I've known that for four years, mate. <laughs> that, was my, that was the first thing I thought. I was like, I hope I've just not paid a lot of money for you to tell me what I've known for, for four years. You're actually really sad, Dan. <laughs> yeah, actually, mate. I think, yeah, it's a bit of depression. You've gone to the right place. Yeah, yeah, mate, I could have told you at nine years old when I wrote the poem. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, but anyway, um, but then obviously he said, look, I'm going to prescribe you with psychodynamic psychotherapy and, and medication, 150 milligrams of sertraline every single day. And, and, and that for me, he was able to understand, okay, I think this is what's going to be right for me based on our conversation. And then I ended up turning up to the the, the, the psychotherapist and uh, I knew immediately just the way that... In fact, no, I'm lying to you. I didn't know immediately. I was... I had so many walls up, but the guy, the guy was like... He was like, Yo, he's like, Dan, listen. He's like, usually I have people that come in here and they're crying on the sofa, they're like breaking down, they're telling me how their life's a mess and all of this sort of stuff. And he said, you're the first person I've had who's come in and treated this like a job interview. And listen, I know I was a recruiter back in the day, but I was in a Hugo Boss suit. and my tie on, had my tie pin on, had my watch on, um, my rings on, my shoes were shined, I had an overcoat, umbrella, all of this stuff. Because that was like my defense mechanism. Yeah. And I was sat on this sofa and he's like, Dan, tell me about what you want from life amazing so I'm in this job now and I want a business after this and my defense mechanism was if I make it seem like I'm amazing on the outside yeah. nobody has to ask me how I'm doing on the inside I've got a whole thing about that year like yeah. where I would I would where I was having therapy and like I you would not have known what a mess I was yeah. from the outside because exactly. I, I think you often look so mm -hmm. made like so pat you're like right no no one's gonna see it yeah and he used to describe it as and, and this was after a few sessions after he sussed me out because I didn't know I was doing this obviously He's like, Dan, it's the Ferrari. Do you not see it? And he's like, everything's the Ferrari, this, this, and this. And it took us, and I used to speak in that manner, sat up straight in that suit every single time. It took us about four months to actually get to a point of talking about something that was then delving into the issues. And, and I was going every single week and I was broke at the time and it's costing me money. I was paying a hundred pound a time. And it took that period. And I, I used to talk about it as being a waste. I was like, I've wasted four months. I, I, imagine if I could have just gone in, but I really needed that 16 sessions to get comfortable with the space, to get comfortable with the individual to, to talk about things. That I think a lot of people change. take a lot more time than we realise. It's mm. not like, even though like, and I, I've, I, I've been, I've had that one, I had free, I had a free nine months when I was, so after Jen died. And then I've gone back to the same mm. therapist a couple of years later, privately. And then I've been to someone new. And I just forgot when I went to someone new earlier this year, just I only had four months with her. And I remember after three months, I was like, oh, I've just got, I just can feel it myself mm. dropping into being able to trust her a bit deeper. I knew I liked her and I knew I could trust her. But however much that initial connection is, I think there's always mm. a little bit of a pushing through the first Definitely. bit. And, and that's how I knew also I was in, the hands of a person who was dealing with this correctly because his and he was he was genuinely like a genius the impact he's had on my life has been incredible but his ability to know and to push so he would constantly just push the boundaries a tiny bit and then he knew exactly when to take the foot off the gas because it's that balance of if if he pushes too much here i'm gonna come i'm gonna leave and i'm not gonna come back because it's gonna be too much his ability to manage that process for me was brilliant and 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 then he got to a point four months in and he asked me this question. I ended up speaking about something I hadn't told anyone before. And it was one of the hardest things I've ever had to tell. And I, I ended up just breaking down and crying and crying. And I went home after that therapy appointment. And I cried for like 30 minutes. I was like five minutes in. And I'm like, Dan, are you finished yet? My body's like, no, 25 minutes left. <laughs> I'm like 20 minutes in and I'm like, I've not even drank enough water to be crying. The amount of tears, like, I'm crying today. And anyway, all of this, this huge weight just like left my body and I took this huge deep breath afterwards and I let it out and I felt physically like I felt physically lighter and I was like 
that needed to come out. Like that's been in there for so long. And then I was like, right, I'm going to talk about everything now <laughs> into the next session. It's like, this person's done my head in over it. I was like, we need to talk about this. And I realized at that point, the power of, of conversation and, and how important it was to put down some of that emotional weight. But it took a long time together. Got a question mm -hmm. about, so you said you were, so you were at work at, and then from seven minutes from being in your work chair to being in your therapy chair. Mm -hmm. And then did you go back to work afterwards? Yes, because that's I found it so when I was having it in 2017 mm -hmm. um it was quite easy so my boss obviously knew so I'd be like on Thursdays I have to leave at, at four mm -hmm. or three thirty and then I got a new boss and so I had to like in like week one be like oh just FYI number one I work four days a week and number two on Thursdays I leave at three thirty mm -hmm. like because I've got and I, I would learn to be quite I was like my cousin died at the beginning of this year and I'm having bereavement counselling, so I have to leave at 3.30. And I was like, okay, it's a medical appointment and that makes it, like, okay. Not just be like, excuse me, I've got my therapy. I need to leave. But um, so when you went back after therapy, so you had a 50-minute 50 50 minute hour, as it is mm -hmm. often, and so seven minutes door-to-door, -door, or ch chair, not mm -hmm. even door-to-door, chair-to-chair. 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 And then you went back in and no one knew where you'd been. No one knew where I'd been. Oh. And I had to sit down after reliving exact scenarios on the day I found out about my dad, on the emotions that I was feeling at the time, on this really complex event that had happened a week before um, the suicide, which, again, I, I don't even speak about publicly. Anymore. It's a part that, again, is, I'm still kind of with. And, um, and I had to relive all of that over and over and over again. And I would sit back down at the chair, Dan, where you keep your eyes up. Yeah. Dan, I need more from you. Dad. On, this, a, and I on a Friday as well. Yeah, I used to sit there and I was like, everyone's flying around me and obviously I've, I've lost the ability to perform in the role yeah. it was another reason why I went to therapy because I, my life in these really important areas was not it, it wasn't where I knew it should be but the pressure of wearing the mask yeah. into work all the time but then it came to a wonderful point seven eight months into therapy and people knew obviously it was a consistent behavior and someone asked me and just said look where are you going I say I've just been going therapy this went on when I was young and I had all these, and the reason I didn't tell anyone, it was like, I'm going to be ostracized from social groups. I'm going to have people that, that treat me differently. They'll view me differently. They maybe think I'm strange or whatever, or they won't know how to approach it. And all of these things, I had all these beliefs that, of how people would react. And the reaction I got was so different. And people would say, oh, wonderful. How's it going? Is it, is it, is it working for you? Is it, is it going well? How, like, how are you doing with it all? And I got the love and support that I never thought would be possible yeah. from, from that environment. And again, just me being able to be honest with where I was at, at that point in my life was so powerful. Because yeah. now I'm like, I don't even need to, I, don't, I, can, I can just do the process now. I don't, I don't have to be, I don't have to have all this craziness going. I can just literally just be me where I'm at in that point of life. And I started to view myself as, as a project and not a problem. And, and it's something I speak about a lot because all the way through therapy and, those first four or five months, I'm like, Dan, the reason you're here is because you're a problem. Your mental health is a problem. All of this is a problem. You have problems, which is why you're in therapy right now. And I was like, it came to this wonderful point partway through, again, close to that six, seven months where I was like, no, 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 I'm just a project. And a, a project requires us to start where we are with what we have. It requires us to plan and prepare for the future and expect things to go wrong. It requires us to pull on the support of other people in order us to, to achieve the goals, whatever the goals are. And I was like, that is me. I need the help of other people. I need to plan and prepare. I need to expect things to go wrong and things to be difficult on this journey through therapy and, and be healing. And, and I need to rely on the support of others and I need to be a bit more compassionate with myself, but I also need to set targets and goals. And I was like, I'm a project. I was like, meet yourself where, where you're at. And, and that was also a really big shift for me through therapy yeah. that allowed me to work with therapy rather than working against it. And so was your, your therapist was male as well? Yes. And Ben was your, um, yeah. Female. Female, mm -hmm. yeah. And also, interestingly, were you both in person? Yes. Because I'm Zoom. Fully. Fully. From, from How did you find when, from Sorry, also, job. Ben, when, when did you start therapy? So Sam died in 2018. Yeah. I was still at school. School was like, hello, that's not good. You should get... And genuinely, there was a conversation where it was like, you should probably... Mm, you know, PTSD, you should probably get something sorted, Ben. Anyway, school was like, we'll recommend someone, go and talk to her. Um, and 
ended up being a bit of a strange one. And I, at the time, and I don't know if you two agree, but my idea of therapy was squeaky leather couch, yeah. wooden chair, on the couch, there on the chair, and they don't say anything for an hour. I generally thought you just sat down and spewed. Right. And so, uh, anyway, that was my idea going into it. Sat down, lovely, it was a lovely room. Um, anyway, it was a, we did not get on at all, me and this lady. It was very, very odd. I remember coming away and thinking, I basically just said what I said in my police statement. Yeah. Um, that, my witness, that was it. Um, so I don't know. That didn't, so actually, I didn't, that was six, six weeks later. So I didn't then go back to counselling for two and a half years. Mm. So I, that takes you through to 2020? Lockdown. Um, lovely, lovely counsellor who I'm still with now, Lucy, um, reached out, said like, I'd love to give you a few, like sessions on Zoom during the pandemic, did Zoom. Uh, and, and we've just, we've been talking about it, like so much of the first few sessions. This is why I get annoyed at people, like, especially like they're going through stuff, mm-hmm. not ex- expecting to sort of start dealing with stuff straight away. The first bit is just you've got to like you've got to ne- get to know build someone, connection. build a connection. You're basically getting given this incredibly intimate relationship with someone. You can't just suddenly go, "Hey, yeah. let's talk about guilt and shame." I hate myself, you know. Like you can't go straight into that. Like the fir- like the first few sessions, you're not going to be. You never just feel in- immediately comfortable to like say your absolute darkest thoughts. No. Like no way. And we don't need to. And and I think that's the biggest thing as as well. People believe that they have to go in and off real everything. It's not about that. It's about handling what you can handle in the moment. I always say, again, that muscle of conversation. The first time I opened up, I said, I'm struggling on the phone to my mum. The next day, I said a sentence. After them being with the therapist, the the psychiatrist, I said, my motivation's here. I've been struggling with this, and I think it's because of this. Then I'm in psychotherapy, and as much as I'm talking about all these ambitions and whatever, we then move on to the conversation of of slowly delving deeper and deeper into the, the heart of it, and then being able to deal with the real the real issues and the deeper issues and the, and the deeper emotions. That's, it's a process and, and, and that takes so much time and the more we get comfortable with speaking and handling what we need to handle, the easier that process is. But I, I also think if there was education around the process of therapy, well, if I, I have a lot of people, like you said, we, we don't really have any education on how to handle that. And there are a lot of ways that you can make the process of starting therapy easier. So for example, little tricks and tools like before your first session, being able to write down what you think you want to talk about. Yeah. Doing that first. So then you can have an idea of, okay, this is what these are the points. This is what I think I'm going to talk about. I'm probably not comfortable with these last three points. So let's save that till a little bit later on in the session. And I think that's a good place for me to start. Wonderful. Researching the types of therapy. So you have a bit of an idea around the process. Doing the Zoom calls with the therapist to understand, okay, this is someone I feel I can connect with. Yeah. Um, speaking to people who've, who've gone through therapy so you can have a bit of an understanding of the process, the good and the bad, what you know is going to be difficult, what you know is going to be possibly great so you can manage those expectations. And I think that pre-work, pre-therapy can make then the process so much more bearable and, and, and easier because it is tough. But having done a little bit of work sooner, I think that can be a great tool. And I, it's something I wish I would have known about maybe a little bit sooner. You know? For the record, I didn't... I didn't do it I mean I did have a zoom with what well, no so when I first had therapy I just got given someone and I said I wanted a woman and I said mm. I'd prefer someone who so I'm half Lebanese half British and I said I'd I'd love to have someone who wasn't totally white and I, they were mm. like well we've got one cis white man for you and he's in his 60s and I was like mm. great free we'll still take it thank you <laughs> um but no I t- uh, look, the second that when I've had therapy since and I'm I deliberately picked a woman who was my age just because I think there's like st- some stuff that I wanted to like talk about that wasn't that I guess was quite specific mm-hmm. about like being a woman in your 30s and like motherhood and things but I I've, I don't write down before I go in like sometimes there's a little thing halfway through the week where I'm like oh I think I might want to talk about th- this on Friday mm-hmm. but then Friday gets there and I'm like oh no we're going straight in with something yeah. else yeah. I am really aware so I recently have been in person again mm-hmm. and I am I walk there and it's 20 minutes 15 20 minute walk and I quite value that time of like, right, I'm, this is going to be mm-hmm. like when I kind of almost prep, prep yeah. for it and like a bit of space before and a bit of space after for me to work out where I'm at that day. Mm-hmm. And it means also when I, I, I walk in, sit down and I'm aware of like where my head and my heart are at that day as well. Like I'm feeling a bit low, tearful, high, happy, something relaxed, whatever. And I guess also because I'm, I'm a cis woman, like my hormones fluctuate through the month and so there'll be some days when I walk in and be like I'm going to cry in three minutes over absolutely nothing like so- sorry like it's not 
it's nothing particularly present today. Mm-hmm. But so that I definitely have a bit of prep before, like in that respect. And also when I did have Zoom, I did try and give myself that 10 minutes beforehand where I'd like my laptop was set up in my room. I might maybe had a tea or a coffee with me and I could just be like, right, this is what I'm doing now. Like, and like shut my door. So I wasn't like speaking to my flatmate, you know, like in the two minutes before and like bitching about work or something, you know? Going back to your point around being a man and, and relying on other people and sort of admitting to needing help. Do you want to, let's just explore that a little bit because we know from talking to Suicide and Co that a large part of their, um, the people that go to counselling services are women. Mm-hmm. Um, a, 80%. Mi- 80% and minority are, are men. Um, that's striking. I know for me, like, seems working in the mental health space, most of my following's women. Most of the people I interact with in this space are women. Most of the, it's, it feels like we're making a lot of progress, but a lot of men are still stuck in this really old-fashioned, really traditional, we have to deal with it ourselves and, and we can't be emotionally um, open. Do you understand where that comes from, that reluctance to seek support? Definitely, because I felt all those things times a thousand. There was the idea that, I couldn't bear being honest with my family because I didn't want to put any burden on them. That's my mum and my sisters, the idea of me putting weight on them again. And I know that's complex with, as I mentioned before, with my belief system that formed. And again, the idea that my emotions were too heavy for people. But I think foundationally across the board, there is that idea, especially as a young adult, of I need to not put any pressure on the females in the family. I need to not be a burden. I need to to make sure that I look after them and my issues I need to deal with myself so that they don't feel worse from this. Are you the only boy? Yes. Yeah, so I've got three three sisters and my mum. So, uh, yeah, I grew up in a, an all-women household from, from that age, um, which was interesting. So I think, and even at the age of nine, like the idea of being the man of my family was ingrained and, and kind of stepping into my dad's shoes. So I think that's one. The... Again, the idea and the belief that money would fix everything for me. So that was another thing. I was like, cool, if I just work hard at my job and if I just make enough money, then then that, that's, how I, that's how I fix this, obviously. How wrong kind of that was. I think the, again, the typical, so my, the stigma that existed w- within me was the idea if I ever have to take a pill for the way I'm thinking, I've lost my manhood. The idea of talking to someone again about emotions, thoughts, feelings and sitting across from someone and crying in front of a therapist, especially if he's a man and all of those sorts of things. That was a big no. That was something that I wasn't I didn't feel was right as a as a as a male growing up. There was, again, how I my worry of how other people would perceive me. So, again, why I didn't tell people in work, because I was like, they will view me as weak. They will think I can't do this job. They'll think I've not got the tools and the skills to be a good recruiter. And my pride is is in the way my ego is too 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 much for that to happen. Um, so there's all those. There's so many. There's so many barriers. They, they were for me personally. What about yourself? Yeah. So I mean, similar similar sort of situation. I feel like for me, it was really interesting because I had this opinion of oh, got to be a man, can't access emotion, can't be open about emotions. But then I was put on such a stage with my grief. And so I had to stand in front of my school and cry. Uh, like it was a very sudden moment of, oh, that's, emo- that's being emotional in front of people. And it was really weird because on the one hand, suddenly I was, it was amazing because I mm. had just opened this door of like, I can be emotional in front of people and that's pretty normal. Mm. And suddenly other people were being emotional with me and I had friends that were crying on me and I was like, this is really amazing. But then there was this deep seed inside mm. of me that was like, actually, I need to do something on the other side, to make myself even more manly. So I invested so much time into mm-hmm. army cadets. And I'd run around with a gun and shout orders people and almost like accentuated the masculine side of my life because I was opening up a feminine side of my life. And it's really interesting because I genuinely, I loved it. I absolutely loved cadets. But I don't know how much of it I loved because I was walking around in army uniform with a rifle, um, you know, and and it felt very like macho, and 
Uh, so, you know, we've spoken about me going to school the day after yeah. sound. That was for cadets. That was for army. Yeah. It was my place to just put on a uniform. I was actually teaching a weapons handling class. And you were doing a what? Weapons handling class. <laughs> Jesus Christ. That's, that's a 17-year-old teaching weapons handling class. <laughs> um, and for me, it was like I had to go the other way. And become, it was safe, by, but just in case MOD's listening, it was, <laughs> we're following all the, all the guidance. Um, and we were only dealing with like, stoppages on a rifle. But anyway. I don't um, know what a stoppage on a rifle is, Ben. <laughs> and I'm 37. Like. But for me, it was like this. That's where I felt I could be emotional and suddenly I could flip into this like army state uh, and so uh, there was almost this weird conflict there it's but really then in terms of accessing counseling it was so even now and I, there is an honesty point that i need to get across here and an honesty moment even now i sometimes lie about counseling and what i'm doing sometimes i have a you know i have to say that i'm in a meeting or i've got this thing in my diary in my counseling diary and i say i've got a meeting this afternoon or when i started counseling in lockdown I didn't tell anyone I was having counselling. And this is, bearing in mind, I've been talking about mental health for yeah. four years at this point, five and a half now. I um, used to, I couldn't do it in my house, and I still can't do it if anyone else is nearby. I used to get in my car and do the Zoom from a lay-by in my car. And I even lied to my counsellor because I said it was because we had internet problems at home. I was so desperate for it to be completely away from everyone. And actually, look, good and bad, obviously there's still stuff deep in my head that sees it as vulnerable. Yeah. Um, but also, I think the great thing about what I had, and I, I love having a Zoom um, Zoom counselling, is that that was an option for me. Mm. It's a really personal, vulnerable thing. And the fact that I could just jump in my car, go and connect 4G, and put, yeah. literally took my um, sat-nav holder in front of the driving seat, just sat there in my car, and had counselling session in my car. It was so accessible for me. But I do even now, sometimes lie about having that counselling session, and I'm not sure where it comes from. So I, in comedy, it is very, very normal to have therapy or for people to be having therapy, and so I find it quite easy. My flatmate has it, so she, we both of us have been doing it on and off on Zoom at home, and so, like, it's like, shut the door, or, like, sometimes she uh, the internet works less well in her room, so I would be like, oh, if I've got enough notice, I'll, like, leave the living room so she can have it. Um, and yet I've... This year, because I'm still occasionally working in an office, I'm having to work out what I say to my temp agency or whether I just try and move or cancel my therapy. And it's not happened yet. But I know at some point it will. And it makes me a little bit anxious saying to, mm. like, saying to, my counsel, uh, saying to my temp agency and be like, actually, I need to start a bit late on Tuesday because that's happening. And just not sure how they're going to react to it. Not, n partly because of work and things, but also because, like... What are they going to be saying behind my back when I can't control the narrative about it as well? Exactly. Like, so I think it is that it's that when we talk about barriers across the board, there are corporate pressures, yeah. there are personal pressures, and and those personal pressures and of of beliefs again that I had around therapy, and then there's the societal pressures as well, and it's like there are so many within those, yeah. and overcoming those is is really really tough, and I think that's part of the reason why people only wait until they're in crisis. Well, it is the reason why, isn't it? It's, I'm only going and and. At the point where I know this is my final option, and I'm literally staring potentially death in the f and that's what it was like for me. It was like the idea of I went through depression and anxiety for four years and suicidal ideation from the age of 17 up until 22, and obviously was still still had that through therapy. I was in so much chaos. I dropped out of university. I struggled to maintain the job. I had five years of drug abuse. I moved 13 different times from the age of 17 to to 22. I didn't have so there's all this chaos. And I knew my life was was in a, a really difficult place and I knew what the foundation was and I knew why it was there and I knew what I was up against. But even for those four years, the idea of me talking to someone was still scarier than facing all of that. Mm -hmm. I'd rather face the dropping out of university, potentially losing my job, not being able to, to navigate relationships, struggling with suicidal thoughts every single day, struggling with the idea of my dad, all those things, the drug abuse, the cocaine, whatever it was, that was a less scary prospect than talking in therapy and it shows like just the extent of, of how it can be for, for individuals. I think um, when I think about, because I, I drank a lot in the year following Jen dying, which uh, given that she was teetotal and had, she'd had drug and alcohol issues, mm. I find it really funny that that became my crutch and I'm really aware 
that towards the end of that year, when I was having therapy, I still was getting like obliterated. Mm. And I like I want I think there's something quite that there's something that really makes me terrified about therapy and I think makes us all terrified of like opening of being open and like having because I think as you go into therapy and you open things up you need to also learn how to like rebuild or cushion what that opening is Mm -hmm. you can't just go back out into the world and be like oh I've I'm now this really open, like over emotional part, like this, all of this emotions that's like there and present and like available. You need to be able to get through that towards the other side. There's, there's, there is an arc to like therapy as well, you know? And, but I think that often we end up doing things that are quite destructive or like blocking emotions because that is less scary than opening up because I sometimes think if you're dealing with a hangover, it's a tangible thing of like, I, just need to eat enough food and have some painkillers, a bottle of Coke, a banana, a fried breakfast, blah, 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 and then I'll fix this physical situation. Sounds like a good start to the day. It does. <laughs> <laughs> but if I've got to fix some long-held, like, emotional, like, deep mm. problems, then that's... that I can't fix that with... with things that I can just put on the table. I think that's why expectations in therapy are also really important and what we was coming around to because it's, it's not easy. I think there's a, a belief that because we're healing and all of this sort of thing that it's going to be a, a process where it is easy and it isn't. It's the exact opposite. You have to work through the shit. You have to work through the difficulty. You have to face those emotions. You have to relive experiences. You have to feel a lot of that stuff again in order to, to understand how it's impacting your behaviours, your beliefs, how you navigate life, all of those things. And you have to stare at it at the face again. It's not an easy task. But so much comes from being able to do that. And that is that is the process. So we work up and we go through that experience that we spoke about of getting comfortable with therapy to the point where we can face those things and we, we, we know we're with the right individual. Then we work through this stuff and we've got someone guiding us through that whole process of working through the shit. And then you come out the other end and you start to implement behaviours after you've dealt with some of that that can now help you navigate life in the future. And then you have this beautiful part at the end, which you, after dealing with a lot of that stuff, now learn ways and mechanisms to, to move forward in life, but also having put down that emotional weight. And it was really interesting that you spoke about some of those behaviours through therapy. And that was the same for me. So I was still taking drugs here and there through therapy. And it was really, really interesting. Um, my therapist said, Dan, when you tell your mum this thing, when you speak to her about a lot of the stuff we're talking about, that's when you can finish. And that was really scary for me because that conversation was far more scary than the, the one with the therapist. And I had finally, at the end, towards the end of therapy, I'd, I'd had this, um, this date that I was going to go and chat to my mum. And the night before, I booked a night out with the lads on the Friday because I was like, I'm coming back to Manchester. I was like, I know I'm speaking to my mum. Self-sabotaging ego, Danny, who wanted to keep me in that space, was like, we've got this night out. And I ended up basically getting involved with police or getting into fights. I lost all my friends. I was just the most reckless I had I'd ever been. And it was so interesting because part of me also knew that I was ready to heal. And I was so scared of that that I wanted to ruin it for myself. And anyway, thankfully I was safe. And I had the conversation the next day. And from the moment I had the chat with my mum, the drugs and the alcohol didn't serve a purpose. And I didn't, I didn't drink and I, didn't, I haven't t- taken drugs since. And I haven't drank to, to that extent. I had eight months to a year where I stopped drinking. Yeah. And it was so interesting because the substances, the alcohol the drugs, they served a purpose. And that was because I, I had the, these things that I needed to deal with and they did serve a purpose, although they weren't the right mechanisms. And it was so interesting when I'd, when I'd done and given myself what I needed psychologically, how, I, how they no longer, they weren't, they weren't needed. It was really interesting. I also think, like, if I think back now, I'm really aware that those first, the f- there was quite a lot of, like, fog in my head in the first few months and like I don't like while I was aware I needed help like I couldn't fully like you were saying you don't know you don't remember how many days it was between the death and the funeral like time passes in such a weird way and it becomes this like blur that actually I think I needed like a little bit of a like Mm -hmm. a bit more of a sense of what was happening day to day to make the most of the therapy I think as well. I think with therapy and, and counselling, the idea of going, and actually more generally, the idea of talking to people about our struggles, mm-hmm. um, it's it's made to be so much more complex. It's made to be so much more simple. Everyone talks about talking about your mental health now. And I think one of the 
the things we skip over so easily is I have no idea. And and just before I started counselling, I had absolutely no idea what was wrong with me or what I was feeling or how I was feeling. And actually, one of the biggest things I was scared of going into counselling is having no idea what I needed to say or how it was going to work. And, and even in my past, like talking to friends, I've had no idea what to say. Um, and I think this is especially true of suicides because you talk to friends. None of my friends know what this is like. You talk to a counsellor. In my brain, I'm like, do they know? They have no idea what it's like. And so I don't even know what, you know, really know what I'm, I'm feeling. And so there was a real, I found it was really, really difficult to even understand what I was needing. Um, and I had all these people, especially early on, being like, PTSD, careful, like, Mm. deal with it early because to be fair like it was extraordinarily traumatic but I didn't know what that meant Mm. I had no idea what I was struggling with Mm. I had no idea what someone else could do to fix the thing that I didn't know I was struggling with and I think we don't really talk about how difficult it is to find the language to talk about actually what's going on and I think that's why the 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 therapy from suicide with it being specific I think that's such a huge factor because it's such a unique experience. And, and like you mentioned there, your friends don't understand. You're going to have people, your work colleagues, are probably not going to understand. And to have someone who you know is specialised, I think that's a, in, the, in the context of therapy from suicide, I think to know that you're sat with a, an individual who deals with this, I think, again, it's just an, it's another bit of confidence for you to, to be able to manage that process. I think that's so important and so integral. I think it's also like, I feel like there was, you know, you, other people, you know other people who lose, have lost a brother, a dad or mm. a cousin or some, someone. And you know, everyone has gone, so many people have gone through funerals, death, all of these things. But there is something really specific and I'm not, I'm not there's no value judgment or like, God, this is the worst. There's something really specific and very dark about suicide loss. And I can't, I can, you know you can place your finger on the practicalities of it, but I can't, I can't fathom quite how wide that darkness is, in my head, and so knowing that the counsellor has specifically and like I went to a bereavement service and I know that my therapist there had specific like specialties with suicide loss, and I knowing that I just was like I sort of know that I was quite cushioned by him, mm-hmm. and also some of the things he said about like me dealing specifically with her loss, the guilt, but also anger with her as well, a huge amount of anger, and how he dealt with that, which at the time I remember being like, well, this is shit. Like, I just remember being almost fed back truths to myself and being like, this is not helpful. Like, I don't like this. I just want her back. And he was like, well, she didn't want that, though, did she? So you're like, what? But, like, just, I know. And it, like, it knowing knowing that that person knew how far to push me in that moment, but also what things to say and how. And, like, I found, like, some of the things to be like, well, mm. go on, talk, talk to her now. I'd be like, fucking, as an actor as well, I'd be like, I don't want to do role play. <laughs> <laughs> Excuse me. like. But it's, it's really interesting that you were talking about that um, point because I was the same. I used to say, when my dad died, yeah. when my dad passed away, and my therapist would say, no, Dan, when he killed himself. Yeah. And it was, like, acceptance of that and... There were so many magical points through the therapy that were just were like that, which now looking back, I'm like, that was amazing and that was handled so well and that is exactly what I needed. And coming on to that, um, what was some of, like, I had so many moments of magic through yeah. therapy, so many beautiful moments. What were some of those for, for you guys? I guess, really, like, there'll be people listening to this that have been sent it or are interested in getting counselling and don't know whether to... Um, I don't know about you two, but my counsellor, Lucy, is one of the most incredible people I've ever met in my entire life. Um, she's one of the top five most influential people in my life. Uh, going to counselling is one of the best things I've ever done. Um, and I can't really tell you why, but I know so much. And we were speaking about it over lunch, actually. It, it, it's, it's given me this map of how my brain works and... One of the biggest problems I had was with forgiveness of myself and self-compassion. And I realize now I was beating myself up so much because I didn't understand why how my brain was working. Anxiety linked to trauma. It's there because your brain's trying to protect you. It's an incredibly, incredibly clever organ 
that's doing things to protect you. Mm. And so for me, anxiety was a huge one. I get so angry at myself for anxiousness and anxiety. When actually anxiety is only there to help you. And if you can try and reframe it and and be kind to to that brain, it's massive. Mm. Um, So for me, look, there was a lot that I had to process. There was a lot I'm still processing, but without a doubt, without a single doubt, those therapy sessions I've done are completely life-changing and absolutely one of the best decisions I've ever made, even though it was terrifying and I had no idea. Mm. And I still have no idea what it's actually done. Um, I had quite a major moment a couple of months in, and I think, as I said, it's literally my job to make 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 people laugh. And I remember sitting down, and because I'd had like a couple of, a few sessions of counselling the year before, and I just remember knowing that with that woman, I was able to just like coast through 45 minutes without really letting anything out um and I remember walking and sitting down and like it was more it was partly just like I must have had some kind of barrier up and I remember being like right it's not getting anything out of me today and I just remember being like right punchline 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 and he just said to me he goes I can see you've made that funny as well but I wonder if we remove the humor what you're actually feeling underneath and I was like oh fuck oh fuck (laughs) and like just being I knew I was doing it but the fact that it got just chucked right back at me with no, not even a hint of like, you, like it's your choice to be here and you need to take that away. It was also just given back to me mm. to like, absolutely. And I know there's a lot of us out of there who are just going like, do you know what? If I just make it, make this really nice and cute and like blah, 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 mm. then we can, we can ignore what's underneath. And it was, it was at that point that I found myself being like, okay, well, I'm going to have to open up now. That's it. And um, I wish I'd got there a bit quicker. Like, you know, that was probably maybe four or five weeks in. But it, just being aware of that, like, has been really helpful. Just in life as well. You know, not just therapy, but, like, being aware of, like, why I'm why I'm, why I'm behaving in a certain way or feeling a certain way or deciding to be, like, really, really chirpy on a specific day. It's like, well, what's what's actually happening underneath there? But no, we have to talk about obviously an incredible body of work, and and again, I've a lot of incredible feedback that's come from it. But that relates really nicely to some of the myths and some of the things we've talk, spoken about in therapy. So, what have you actually involved, uh, kind of in the book, and and that's you think is really going to help people yeah. with the process of therapy from today's conversation as well? Talking to, about, to be fair, writing the book was therapy in itself, um, but for me, it was going into this. I had no idea what to expect. The first, you know, my, one of my first experiences with a counsellor was completely, completely mad. Um, we, you know, there were like, there was a box of tissues and she used most of them because she was crying. Um, it was all... <laughs> oh, so this is where it gets a bit, this is where it gets a bit difficult. So we, yeah, anyway, she, um, or they, actually I should say, um, they communicated with the um, other, like another world. Um, did, so, did you ask for that? No. <laughs> <laughs> I really, I really hope they aren't listening. But this no, is, um, this was bizarre. So, um, sat down and they, uh, they spoke to their dead parent. Can I just wait um, one more question? How old were you? Uh, Seventeen. That is so inappropriate. Yeah. So that was my experience. That was my, one of my first experience of counselling, and that turned that completely. Congratulations for going back. Yeah. I'm on a serious And note. this is what this is what I mean. It's like there is so much confu- I had no idea what to expect. And so then going and meeting Lucy, who was wonderful and amazing and really did some incredible work, suddenly I realized actually this is what counseling was and this is why it's so good. And actually then for me going into that whole experience and talking about it in the book, but yeah, it's uh you've got to find the right person. That's yeah, why I you asked do gotta find the right person. How, yeah. how you gotta know how you know. And I yeah. think you know when it's someone you're actually can do. I love having a laugh with. Well, like we're, yeah. I'd say we're good friends. On a good, on a good day, yeah. Right, Probably and it's good. fun having a laugh. You feel that vulnerability and connection. But anyway, I wrote a book about it. It's. Um, it, I try my best to just be completely honest and open about the absolute shit that happened um, and the trial and error of trying to get better. Because it is. Yeah. <laughs> it's all full of lumps and bumps and bruises and blood and sweat and tears and all sorts. What, I know, obviously you've got a book about it. What, if you had one bit of advice about therapy or, or professional help or whatever it is, counselling, what, what's your one bit of 
If have you got a sound bite? Yes, absolutely. Um, feelings are meant to be felt, and when you feel them, the bad ones lose their power. The problem with trauma and with bad experiences is they're guarded by your brain behind an airport security line. Okay, in normal everyday life those thoughts can't get through the airport security because they turn them away. So you never really feel them. Counselling, for me, turned that security off in a very safe place. These thoughts came through and you felt them. And we've spoken before about me talking about what happened to me in a very plain, unemotional way. That's because everyday life, they go, the emotions don't get through that buzzer. It sounds the brain reacts and stops you thinking it. Therapy, counselling, to me, turned off the airport-style security allowed me to feel them and like I said once you feel them the bad ones lose their power and suddenly the bad thoughts the bad feelings the bad emotions that are very very negative they didn't control me I was able to process them and have more control over them that's what I'd say therapy was for me um, and that's that's my soundbite <laughs> thank you so much for joining us Dan it's been absolutely brilliant talking to you and um, it takes a lot of bravery to sit on a podcast and talk so openly about yeah. such an awful experience. Appreciate so I really, really genuinely appreciate it. And I'm sure everyone at home listening has appreciated it too. Thank you very much. No, it's been a pleasure as well. And a lovely way again to start again, the, the just meeting you guys in person and the, just the work with Suicide and Co. I yeah. think it is incredible. Oh, yeah. So what a special way to start. It's been a pleasure. Yeah. Love the chat as well. Thank you very much. Thanks so much for listening. Conversations in Company would like to thank ACAST for letting us use their studio, our wonderful guests and all you listeners. Thank you for your generous support. Please do rate, review and subscribe or send it to a friend you think might need it. We'll be back with another episode soon.